what it taught me and what I've done many times ever since then is there could be new and different roles and to take the leap to be the first person to be in a role can actually be a career accelerant. So I've had been in business for 25 years. I've had 10 roles over that time. And seven of the 10 roles that I've had at PNG and at Google never existed before I took those roles. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. I'm Andrew Darvin, humor engineer. And I'm Roman Segel, recovering marketer. Andrew and I both got our start at PNG, the Procter and Gamble company, where we both had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at PNG. In this series, through conversations with fellow PNG alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know but want to know more about, how they got their start, how they make it work, and what keeps them going. It's kind of like bringing a microphone to a cup of coffee, or in my case, hot chocolate. On today's show, we're talking to P&G alumni leader, Julie Edelman, Double Verify's Global Chief Commercial Officer. It was a great conversation about not just bringing your full, authentic self to work, but the importance of taking risks, making choices, and building relationships. This Pride Month, we want to replay a few conversations with past LGBTQIA plus guests on this PNG alumni podcast. And one of our favorite alumni and earliest guests was Julie Edelman. When we first interviewed Julie at the very beginning of this podcast, Julie was still at Google, but she has since made another amazing leadership leap to Double Verify, which totally checks out with her willingness to make leaps to further grow in her career. Here's a quick bio. Julie Edelman is Double Verify's Global Chief Commercial Officer. Prior to joining Double Verify, Julie spent six years at Google as one of the company's top client partners, accelerating partnerships with companies like GM, Ford, Fiat Chrysler, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, and P&G. And across nearly 20 years at P&G, Julie worked on partnerships with the NFL, the Olympics, and many of the company's biggest partnerships and investments. Julie's been recognized as an ad age media maven, an LGBT influential leader by The Advocate magazine, and Woman of the Year by Powerplay New York City in her role in mentoring young women and girls. Julie is a proud graduate of Purdue University, as well as a proud wife and mother. You'll enjoy this candid conversation about not just bringing your full, authentic self to work, but the importance of taking risks, making choices, and building relationships. So let's talk to Julie. Julie, a lot of people know your professional story, but what folks might not know is who were you before the beginning of your career journey? Can you tell me a story from your youth that, that shaped who you are today? Sure. I'd say a couple of things that were really important that shaped the, my professional career and even my personal life. Two things. I was a competitive swimmer for about 15 years. So I started swimming wow. when I was five years old and did that until I uh, went to school at Purdue, decided not to do that in order to get into other activities at Purdue. But I was a competitive swimmer for 15 years and I was a 10-year 4-H'er, uh, which is a youth program that Every single one of my siblings was also a 10-year participant in, and my parents, who are both still alive at 83, have been leaders in 4-H for over 55 years. Wow. And, and so 4-H is a service organization, right? Well, it's a service organization, but you also take projects and learn about uh, a variety of different things. So you could take a project on cooking, you could take a project on photography, you could take a project on computer science. Um, and there's also a really strong presence in rural America, uh, where it's all about raising farm animals and, uh, you know, how disciplined it takes to raise and show those farm animals. 
So what was the coolest project that you got to work on in 4-H? Probably the coolest project I got to work on. Um, I loved photography. And I think that that was something, you know, if you think about 40 years ago when I started 4-H, there was no digital photography. So it was very precise. It was really expensive to buy film and you needed to be really prepared and disciplined and think about what shots you were going to take. That's awesome. So what did you want to be when you grew up? You know, I think when I was especially in, you know, junior high and high school, I really thought I would probably be a doctor or a lawyer. I think one of the reasons I thought that is because that's what you heard about, uh, <laughs> you know, what you wanted to be uh, when when you were fairly smart and really motivated. Those are the two things uh, that you thought about being. I admire doctors and lawyers. I especially admire doctors right now in the COVID situation that we have around the world. Uh, but I'm super happy that I chose to be a business person and and be a leader amongst some of the best Fortune 500 companies in the world. So how'd you, what was the first way you made money then? First way I made money is a little bit related to being a competitive swimmer. I was a lifeguard at our local pools nice. uh, with all of my friends. It probably is still the greatest job that I ever had. <laughs> so awesome. I loved it. <laughs> so looking back at that younger version of Julie, the 4-H photographer, the lifeguard, the competitive swimmer, how are you similar to that little girl? You know, what I would say is um, I've been the same pretty much my whole life. I'm an extreme extrovert. I love people deeply. I love people passionately. I love to get to know as many people as I possibly can. Uh, but I also want to have really meaningful and close friendships. Uh, and I've been that way my entire life. I literally had pen pals when I was, you know, 10 to 18. When I was a competitive swimmer, they were my biggest competitors, but they were also some of my best friends. There was no internet or texts then. So I literally wrote letters back and forth with uh, some of my biggest competitors. So I've always had people front and center um, my entire life. And I absolutely love meeting as many people as I possibly can. So is that how you got into business? Is that part of it? Like, how did you get into um, Proctor? Like, how did you find out about them? Yeah, I think um, from the very beginning, I always wanted to lead groups of people. I really didn't know that I wanted to lead groups of people, but I naturally um, went towards activities where I could do that. Literally, one of my funniest stories, I was, I was also in drama club when I was in elementary school and junior high, and I was selected to be the head clown. So we had a clowning <laughs> group. When, when I, when Wait, what I does that involve? Does that involve like the costume and the makeup and everything? Yes, literally like makeup, clown, you know, uh, head to toe dress, um, like you would see in the circus. I, and when I was 10 years old, I was the youngest person in our clowning group, but I was selected to be selected to be the head clown to lead the organization and, uh, you know, work with the leader to put forth our practice times and what we needed to work on and, you know, what our skits would be and everything. So starting from when I was about 10 years old, I knew I wanted to lead people. Um, and I think Procter, especially brand management and marketing at Procter & Gamble is all about leading the organization. So I was naturally drawn to an organization that, you know, had a, had businesses and brands uh, that wanted strong leaders um, and that were very uh, centric on the people being the most important thing for an organization. So that's why I applied to get into brand management at Procter & Gamble. And after my uh, undergraduate and graduate degree at Purdue University, I was an intern at P&G in the uh, commercial products group. Got it. So what was one of those early defining career moments, one of those early lessons learned on the job? 
Yeah, I think um, a couple of really critical moments for me. One was um, taking what is called a CTMM role. So that's the customer team marketing manager roles. Sales, right. So that it's a it's a brand management marketing role on our sales team. So P&G is set up where there's brand managers on the Walmarts and the Walgreens yep. and the CVSs. And I was the first brand manager on the Dollar General team, um, which was a very new role at Procter. And I, first of all, absolutely loved it. I thought it was amazing to be front and center with the sales team and working with the clients at Dollar General. And what it taught me and what I've done uh, many times ever since then is there could be new and different roles. And to take the leap to be the first person to be in a role can actually be a career accelerant. So I've had been in business for 25 years. I've had 10 roles over that time. And seven of the 10 roles that I've had at P&G and at Google never existed before I took those roles. And I think that's something that's really important for people um, that are in the middle of their career to really think about. So were there times where things didn't work? And what were kind of the learnings from those? Yeah, there's many times that things didn't work out. I I think the most important things um, to really learn from is why was there a failure? Was there a failure in product? Was there a failure in consumer insights? Was there a failure in the execution of either bringing a product to market or the marketing plan? Did the financials just not make sense for the company or the brand that you were working on? So really understand what the core failures were uh, and then make sure, you know, personally that you don't repeat those again. And if you're working for, uh, you know, a company, um, hopefully that values those, which Procter & Gamble and Google both really value from learning from failures, is to make sure that that is codified and um, that you teach other people in the company about that so that there's not other failures again. Yeah, it's it's kind of take stock and reflect. It, you do need to kind of dust yourself off with the failure, but it's kind of like fool me once, but don't fool me twice and make sure you don't fool the rest of the organization as well. Exactly. So I have to also ask, look, our audience, many of whom are rising women professionals, they want to hear about a moment where people further along in their career face professional adversity as a female leader, being treated differently from your male colleagues, whether it's in the field, on the job, in the conference room. Can you share any moments uh, where you've had to deal with that and kind of what the lessons learned from that was? Yeah, what I would say is I have been very fortunate that I don't feel like I have directly experienced this um, personally. But what I have seen throughout the years many, many times is that there's really inequities in the systems and in the people processes at companies. I I would say P&G and Google are two of the greatest companies in the world. But I've still seen inequities across performance reviews, across compensation, across promotion processes. And so what I have really focused on is trying to be a part of systemically improving those systems and really being courageous enough to speak up when I've seen that and make a point that when it's the leaders across the organization that are the only ones that can really improve those processes that they know where those inequities are. There's been many times where I've been either one of the only women um, or the only women on those leadership teams. And it's been really, really scary to speak up when you see those inequities. What's scary about it, Julie? Uh, Just putting yourself on the line. And, um, you know, what I would say is um, 
being afraid that maybe uh, you would, I would be judged or I would be, you know, the person that people would say, oh, she's just the woman trying to, trying to, um, you know, give us a hard time. But what I would say is every time that I've spoken up, um, most of the time it's the men that just don't see that they're not looking for it. Um, they have all good intentions at heart and in their mind, and they're really smart men, but they just haven't been able to notice it. And so any person that is a part of a underrepresented minority, if you point that out, the men, it's usually the straight white men that are in those organizations, um, they learn from that and they will not make that mistake again. Yeah, it comes back to kind of the learning, um, make the mistake, find out about it, figure it out and go. Because so many, um, and I can say this as a male, like we have unintentional blind spots until it's pointed out. So, and, but then as a minority, it's also, uh, kind of my truth to make sure people understand what it is in, in kind of a tactful, respectful way though. Yeah. Everyone has unconscious biases. I mean, I have them. Um, you just need to be aware of them and make sure, especially when you're making personnel decisions and promotions decisions and compensation decisions, that those are front and center in your mind. What I would also say, this is kind of a little bit of a first world problem or story, but at Google, I've been a part of uh, our master's uh, client facing hosting, which is amazing. We have uh, 12 people that we bring to the master's every year. It's an absolutely amazing opportunity that I've been able to be a part of. And just because of when the master's is, it's usually during spring break. It's during usually busy uh, business planning times for our clients. The people that always ended up coming from our clients, it was 95% men that ended up coming to that amazing opportunity to be able to see a really special event and um, do the networking of very senior people across businesses with Fortune 500 companies across the world. So a couple of years ago, I brought forward the idea of why don't we reserve the Thursday and Friday of the Masters to do an all-women event, make it really special, have some special guest speakers. We had Nancy Lopez, who is an amazing um, golf professional in the Hall of Fame, come to us and speak to us directly. And we had 12 amazing business leaders that were women from all different industries who took time away from their schedules came to that event. And it was one of the most special events that I've ever been a part of, but more importantly, an event that was the most special thing that those senior women have done. And all of those women have kept in touch and actually been able to bounce problems and issues and ideas off of each other over the last couple of years that they really just never would have had the opportunity to meet uh, those senior women in very different industries uh, to be able to almost have a mentorship and a sponsorship, but all people that were very senior in those uh, their own organizations. I love that because it's while you want to have representation at the big event, carving out a unique space as well matters just as much, I think. Absolutely. So the other question I have to ask is you're openly gay. And how has been being a gay professional informed choices at work? Being out at work you know, were there ever moments early on where you had to adjust who you were to fit in? And, and how have you changed as you've kind of evolved your career and grown in your career? Yeah, what I would say is just in general, uh, with me, kind of what you see is what you get. Um, <laughs> and um, in all aspects of my life, and there is just no way that I would have been able to hide that part of my life um, and be able to make the personal connections 
that I need to make in order to be my full self at work and in order to really, you know, make those personal connections that I think is the most important part and really the most rewarding part about being in business. What I would say is, you know, throughout my 25 years where I've known I've been gay and where I have been out and I've been a part of the LGBT leadership teams at both Google and at uh, PNG. I have absolutely seen people that just weren't comfortable coming out. They thought it would hurt their career. They were afraid for their job. They were afraid for the stability of literally making the money that would support their family. And what they have seen over the years is that it just took more energy to hide that part of their life than to be out and to bring their full self. So they have, most of the people that I know, 99% of the people that I know have come out at work, at Google, at PNG, at many other organizations that I've worked with, even my clients that I serve at Google. And it's made their lives so much better. I think just, you know, what's happened in the world over the last 10 years has made that a lot easier. But I think what's really important is as leaders, it's very important to be able to set up the psychological safety on your team so that people know that they can come out and that they can be safe and that they can have that psychological safety to bring all aspects of their life. And they're going to perform much better in their roles and they're going to give you much more um, to your organization and set up the psychological safety for all of the people on the team, regardless of whatever uh, they need to have, maybe that they're not as comfortable sharing with the entire team. Yeah, I think it's the idea of bringing your whole self is important, but also kind of like burning the bandwidth on hiding something. Um, and, and I love how there's guidance for managers, right? So not even someone who might not be out, but the manager, you don't know who's on your team or what's going on. So kind of creating that comfort space where they, they feel safe where they can bring these sort of topics up. Yeah, I think that's true for anything. I'd say everybody has something mm -hmm. going on in their life. Yeah. We talk about psychological safety a lot at Google. What we know is that psychological safety in teams and from leaders is the number one most important thing for individual performance and for high-performing teams. And so uh, as a leader, setting up psychological safety is absolutely the most important thing for your team to be successful. And now, a word from our sponsor. Me, Robin Segel, one of your favorite Learnings from Leaders co-hosts. As you may already know, I actually host another podcast on race and gender called Modern Minorities with my co-hostess with the mostest, Sharon Lee Tony, where we're out to create greater empathy and understanding in the world alongside folks who look and live differently from us. Modern Minorities is a show where each week my longtime pal Raman and I uncover common and uncommon truths that we all need to hear for our majority brains and ears. Yeah, Sharon and I have spoken to doctors, lawyers, directors, comic creators, VCs, startup hustlers, climate activists, angry Asians, getaway car drivers, politicians, athletes, chefs, writers, and even more than a few PNG alumni. Folks who are black, brown, white, gay, straight, and everything in between. Past guests have included comedian Margaret Cho, community policing mayor Svante Myrick, representative Jennifer Gom Gershowitz, Southern Poverty Law Center journalist Geraldine Mariba, Good Talk author Mira Jacob, Peloton instructor Sam Yeo, comics creator Jean Lun Yang, PNG alumni voices like Kenyatta Nelson, Stefan K. James, Ida Abdelkani, Rajiv Satyal, Andrew Tarvin, Matt Story, Naveen Gupta, and many, many more from the PNG family and beyond. 
We've even talked about Ramadan, Diwali, Lunar New Year's, Black History Month, Kamala Khan, and Robin being queer. It's like we're trying to solve racism with the podcast. Challenge accepted. So check out Modern Minorities at modmypod.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Remember, we're all modern minorities, but we're no one's model minority. And now, back to our show. Who's been your mentor or how, who have you been mentored by or who have you learned for over the years? And how have you modeled your behavior? Yeah, I have so many mentors. Uh, it's hard to, hard to, you know, really narrow that down. I would say, you know, at Procter & Gamble, Susan Arnold, uh, who, you know, was one of the most senior women ever. Uh, at P&G, Mel Healy, who's also a very senior woman uh, at Procter & Gamble. Jody Allen, who's now the CMO at Hertz uh, and was my boss at P&G. They all have been amazing mentors. And what I would say is, you know, to people out there, it's really important to have many mentors. It's important to have a variety of different mentors. Um, I've had uh, female and male mentors. Currently, I would say, you know, one of my best mentors and the person who's now my boss is Kirk Berry. Uh, he was at Procter & Gamble and is now at Google. He's an amazing uh, business leader who has taught me so much about integrity and teamwork and really the importance of coaching and training and demanding the most of your people, but also making sure that they feel safe. Uh, they've all taught me so much. And I, I really think something that's really important is, is having people that have a variety of experiences that are from a variety of different business organizations, a variety of different companies. They're all going to teach you something different um, and they're all going to push you at different times of your career. One of my best mentors also is somebody who I never worked uh, for. Um, who was outside of the company. Her name is Laura Desmond. She was one of the most senior leaders at Publicis. Uh, I was one of her clients. And then in a reversal of fortune, she became one of my clients. Um, and she's been one of my steadfast mentors who has really pushed, coached, and trained me along the way. You know, um, it's funny you talk about the reversal of fortune. Like coming up in my career as a digital marketer, I got to work with tons of startups and just entrepreneurs out there. And more often than not, I was like, you guys are smarter than me, or uh, you know something that I don't know. And I kind of sought out those friendships and relationships, and some of them were mentors. And it's really done me well in my career. Like so much of my network is rooted in those early professional relationships where it was kind of about joint learning from each other. And it's funny, you mentioned Susan, Mel, Jody, and Kirk. They're all on our list for this podcast. So Susan, Mel, Jody, and Kirk, if you're listening, we want to have a chat with you on the podcast. <laughs> so I guess the other question I have for you is, this idea of balancing work and life, Julie, you're a parent. Uh, was there ever a moment when you took your foot off the gas pedal? What I would say is not really, if I'm going to be 100% <laughs> honest. Um, I, I, in my, since I was about seven years old, you know, uh, I was setting goals as a competitive swimmer when I was 10. I was elected head clown. Um, I was president of student body, both at my high school and at Purdue. And in my 25 years in business, I, I really haven't took my foot off the pedal. Um, I, there are different times when you have to make certain choices. So on a daily basis, mm -hmm. on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, and when you have different rules, there's different times when you're going to have to work harder uh, than other times. But in general, no, I've really not ever taken my foot off the gas pedal. <laughs> so I guess then when you've made those big career choices, some of those career forks in the road, how did the role of family factor into those decisions? What I would say is family has always been front and center with every career decision that I've ever made. So it's always number one, absolutely no question. It's 
currently the most important thing that I factor into any career choices that I have. I'm at Google, but I still live in Cincinnati. Um, I Procter & Gamble is one of my clients. I have a variety of other clients, big clients like GM and Ford and Coke and McDonald's. And I have to travel a lot. Uh, so I do travel globally normally 40 to 50% of the time. But I schedule all of my trips around the most important family moments, around birthdays, around sporting events, around choir concerts, around whatever that might be. So no matter what I'm doing, I always put family first and foremost. And to be honest, I probably would not be living in Cincinnati if I didn't put family first uh, first in those choices. I love Cincinnati. It's an amazing place to live. It's a great place to raise a family. But in terms of the most and varied career choices that I would have, there's probably other bigger uh, cities that I could live in where I would have more opportunities. But it's been it's been amazing to live in Cincinnati, have friends that I've been friends with for 25 to 30 years here. Um, and my family loves being in Cincinnati. So by the time you were my age, you were managing a lot of young professionals entering that same kind of family stage, those early inflection points. So what coaching do you give? people like me starting a family um, to think about that, that balance between the two. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it's really hard to find what I would call work-life balance. I am very good at, and I have always been a work-life integrator. So uh, everyone knows pretty much what I'm doing at all times. My kids know what I'm doing, where I am, when I have to travel. Uh, and my team, my calendar is open 24 hours a day. They literally can see where I am all the time, what I'm doing with my family. If I'm taking a break for a walk in the middle of the day, not everyone is comfortable with that. And I think that is totally okay. What I have learned in order for me to thrive, in order for me to be the best that I can be for my team, in order for me to be the best that I can for my family, I need to be an open book in terms of my schedule and in terms of integrating what I do on a daily basis. What I would say for my team is that it really is about trade-offs on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis. There are different times where you're going to need to work 12 to 14 hours a day. That's just, it's a fact of being in business. Yep. If you're launching a new product, if you're um, you know, in the middle of your really big business reviews or a firm, firm financial planning process, you're just going to have to work 12 to 14 hours you cannot sustain that physically or mentally over a long period of time. So you need to make sure that if you do that one week, you need to take a couple of days off the next week and you need to be there for your partner. You need to be there for your family and you need to be able to be okay making those choices on a weekly, on a monthly, and even on a, you know, a certain role that you're doing basis. There's just times that maybe you do need to take a role that you don't have to work 12 hours. And other times where you're going to be able to have roles where you can travel a lot and you can work 12 hours a day. Yeah, I think that communication and transparency, not just with the teams, but with your partner. So uh, letting your partner know that this is going to be the week of business review or the week of the podcast launch or the interview with Julie. <laughs> can you get our daughter downstairs while I'm talking to her? Um, it, because it's it allows you to kind of make space and kind of know the give and take both with your team and and with your with your team at home. So. What would you say that your kids have learned from you? What what do they see about their mom at work? Yeah, we were talking about this. Uh, the weather was beautiful in Cincinnati yesterday, 70 degrees. So we got our boat out. It's uh, probably the 
biggest gift that I have besides my kids is is our boat on the beautiful Ohio River. Um, and absolutely what we have taught them is unconditional love. No matter what we're doing, no matter what they've done, no matter uh, if they're on the you know, the, the highest of highs in terms of what they've accomplished or the lowest of lows in terms of making uh, maybe not the best decisions in their lives, we love them unconditionally no matter what. They're the most important things in our lives, uh, and they absolutely know that. All five of our amazing kids. We have five kids, 13, 15, 22, 24, and 34, and one grandson who's five months. They mean everything to us, and unconditional love is what they know. So outside of the family and work, you're working on a lot of other cool things. Um, something I read about was your work with Global Sports Mentoring for Women. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, besides my kids, it's uh, definitely the most important thing that I've ever done. So uh, about, uh, well, in 2012, Hillary Clinton, who at that time was the Secretary of State and the president of ESPN, started something that's called the Global Sports Mentoring Program with the idea of bringing amazing women, about 20 women from around the world for five weeks to the United States to learn about what they could do to bring a passion project or a nonprofit to life in their home country. So they come to the United States for about five weeks. They spend about five days in D.C. bonding with each other, learning about leadership, learning about how to write grants, learning about how to work with businesses to raise funds for their nonprofits. They then go to either big companies or companies, uh, organizations like the NCAA or the Big East or um, amazing agencies like Saatchi and Saatchi and learn what they need to learn in order to bring their visions to life. Then they go back to um, D.C. and they really perfect their action plan. They present that to the State Department and then they go back to their home country and they implement the action plan that they have perfected uh, while they're in the United States with their um, sponsoring organization. So I started it when I was at Procter & Gamble, and part of my negotiations when I came to Google was to continue to have that really amazing involvement in the Global Sports Mentoring Program. And uh, Kirk Perry has been absolutely amazing in helping fund that at Google, in giving me the space and making sure that Google people know about how amazing the program is. And then Mark Pritchard from Procter & Gamble has been an amazing sponsor of that at PNG and has allowed a variety of people, but Janet Fletcher in particular, who is the global marketing director for sports marketing at Procter & Gamble, to be the um, lead mentor at PNG as we've brought that program to life over the last eight years. That's amazing. It, it comes back to your bringing your whole self to work, right? It's, it's something you care about. And just so cool, when you were going to Google, you said, hey, this is a thing I care about, and I need to keep this as part of my, my life and my work. Yeah, I think it's extremely important to have passion projects, whether they're related to work or not related to work, uh, that really fuel you over the years. And what I would say is a sweet spot is when you can have a passion project that is um, somewhat related to work and that you can bring your expertise uh, that you've built over the years and help others. And helping people around the world makes it even more impactful. So shifting gears a little bit more, but staying in the future, um, we're we're in some pretty interesting times right now. I think that's an understatement. What concerns or or excites you about kind of what lays ahead? 
in the near and the, the mid future? Yeah, I would say they're directly related to each other. I'm just excited about what technology can bring to all aspects of the world. Every day at Google, I am blown away by the positive aspects of how technology will improve our lives on a daily basis. I would say, especially in the healthcare field, just machine learning and how we should be able to exponentially learn more and learn more quickly about some of the biggest health challenges in the world. Google's working on this. Amazon is working on this. Many of the largest healthcare companies are working on this. And that's just incredibly, incredibly exciting to me. I would say what also worries me is that technology and our time spent with and on technology devices and on social media might take away that personal connection that we have with each other and that we have with our families and our kids. And we talk about it on a daily basis with our children. We talk about it on a daily basis with our teams. So I, I, I think the good and the most challenging parts of technology are what excites me and also uh, what, what I'm most concerned about now and in the future. Yeah, it, it almost boils down to um, how we teach ourselves and our, our teams and our families like how to use this technology. It, it can be a massive enabler, but there's massive risk, as with anything. Absolutely. I would say the other thing I'm really excited um, in terms of my job is uh, the future of the automotive industry with Google in particular. You know, I've got General Motors, Ford, and Fiat Chrysler all as my clients, and I'm the executive sponsor of Auto Across Google. They're huge clients of ours from an advertising perspective, but what we are doing with them and what we can do with them in the future with cloud computing all across different parts of their supply chain. And then with Google Automotive Services, which is all about maps um, and Google search and combining that together, integrated into their car and integrated into their system. There's just amazing things that Google can do with the automotive industry. Uh, that's really going to transform it over the next few years. So I'm super excited about yeah, that. Yeah, uh, I'm a proud Android Auto user, but I feel like being in the car is a very different experience than it was, you know, when I was in my like 1984 stick shift Toyota Celica when I was growing up. And I do think self-driving is something that just motivates me so much as I think about um, my parents and older generation and mobility for people. We live in very interesting times. Absolutely. We were just in Phoenix for Cubs spring training, one of the one of the most fun things I've ever done. And we were uh, in one of the new Waymo cars uh, that is in Phoenix. And I got to tell you, it was amazing. That's so awesome. Well, we've got to wrap up soon, but I want to ask a few fun questions, uh, kind of speed round style. So. All right. All right. So, do it. you know, I don't even want to ask my first question because I know you were a clown, but I was going to ask what, what fact about you surprises people. Is there something else that, that the open book of Julie hasn't told us yet? You know what? What I would say is I am an open book. What probably would surprise people is that I was a head clown and that I'm a grandma. I'm a fairly young grandma. Um, and, you know, we spend a lot of time around the world and we're super social. Um, so the fact that we are our grandma's um, is pretty amazing. It's been incredible to spend time with our grandson, Griffin, this week. He is the most smiley, happiest kid in the world, uh, and it's been an absolutely amazing experience. That's awesome. So what's your go-to media escape? Are you more of a movie, a book, or a TV person? 
Yeah, maybe this is also surprising. Probably none of the above. Um, I, I, what I would say is I am a sports person. I am a sports person of all kinds. I love playing sports. I love watching sports. I love watching our kids play sports. Uh, one of the jokes I have with my ESPN pals that I am extremely close with is I'm the biggest ESPN fan uh, for somebody who's never worked at ESPN. So huge sports fan, uh, totally obsessed with all types of sports, baseball, uh, college basketball, all types of football, women's basketball, softball. I but love if you could only it. watch one for the rest of your life, what would it be? Probably women's basketball. I'm on the Women's Basketball Coaches Association Board of Directors, and it's been amazing to see that growth of the sport. Sabrina Inescu was just the number one pick last week in the WNBA draft. I think uh, the WNBA has an amazing future. It's, uh, it's funny you mentioned being an ESPN super fan. Ironically, so many friends that work at Google, uh, but Google's my kind of like <laughs> love mark brand. So that's cool. So if you had the infinite resources, go do and learn any one thing, what would that extra thing be? Yeah, that's a tough one. To be honest, what I would probably do right now, um, I don't even know that it would be to learn anything. It's been, uh, we've been working a lot uh, over the last six weeks. Um, I would probably take a vacation with my family. I would take time away, take my entire family to uh, a place like Bora Bora, <laughs> get one of those little huts, uh, take all of the devices and technology away uh, and just spend time enjoying each other in the That's, sunshine. That sounds amazing, especially right now. <laughs> um, so who is someone out there that you would want to have a coffee or podcast interview with? Yeah, I think I would love to to meet and spend time with Ellen DeGeneres. I think a lot of people would say that, but I think especially as a lesbian, what she has done over the last 30 years, her courage and her ability to connect with people one-on-one, -on -one, whether that be in person with celebrities around the world, but also through her television, through her YouTube channel. Um, I would love to spend some time with Ellen DeGeneres. Awesome. And as someone who's still in Cincinnati, but we asked this of a lot of our guests, um, or what is your favorite thing to do in Cincinnati? Yeah, I would say two things. Um, one is on the boat with our family and our friends on the Ohio River. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, and the fun bars and restaurants that are along the uh, along the Ohio River, we absolutely love. And then we live in Loveland, so the Loveland bike trail. Yeah, I've done that. Um, getting exercise, uh, absolutely love it. The the exercise you can get either walking or on your bike on the Loveland bike trail. And there's tons of new restaurants uh, and bars popping up on the Loveland bike trail. We love to do that with our family and our friends. So, Julie, one last question. What's one final piece of advice or challenge that you would give the next generation? Yeah, I think similar to what we've talked about throughout the podcast, I think making sure that you keep people at the center of everything that you do in terms of personal relationships with your family, with your partner, with your friends, with your colleagues, having those really strong personal connections is really what's going to make you happy in your life, make you uh, excited about leading your teams and, and really having fun every day, making your business and making your teams succeed to the best of their abilities. What I'm worried about um, now is just uh, us taking that personal connection away, either by working too much or by spending too much time in front of screens, in front of technology, those deep personal connections and getting to know 
what people's dreams are, what their aspirations are, what they're afraid of, what they really want to accomplish in their lives. I think that that's going to allow you to get more out of your teams, more out of your career, um, and really just make people happier on a daily basis. That is some great advice. Well, Julie, thank you for your time. Um, I just really appreciate you being really open and honest about your experiences and kind of sharing deeply personal advice with our audience. I know they're going to love it. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. Have a great day. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at pgalumpod. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. That's it for this week. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Andrew Tarvin. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.